Daily Sense, bringing an informed financial perspective to the Cayman community. Good morning. This should be fun. It's, well, that's one way of describing it. Emil Kalinowski as well. Good morning, Emil. Good morning. Well, let's kick off then with Mr. Cheerful and have everyone anxiously stressing over their Weetabix and cornflakes this morning as we move on to the perhaps most important question. Are we about to see and experience impending doom and a recession? I'll Emil. just jump right in. <laughs> yes, good morning. <laughs> if you're not drinking coffee, that'll wake you up. Absolutely. Well, I'm of two minds. Uh, there's the question of whether or not there's going to be a recession and a recovery. But that could we could discuss that later. So let's, let's talk about the optimistic stuff too, later then, shall we? Yes. More importantly, is there going to be an economic slowdown? And I think that is going... That seems inevitable. If we look at leading economic indicators from Japan, such as machine tool orders, or Germany, new manufacturing orders, or China, uh, new export orders, these economic accounts reflect more about the broader world than they do about the individual countries. And those indicators are very poor. They're at levels last seen uh, 10, 12 years ago during the recovery from the Great Recession. So, and it keeps getting worse. It's not getting any better. More um, more advanced economic accounts, such as PMIs, which is a little bit more sentiment-based than the actual hard numbers of these uh, economic accounts I just mentioned, those are also generally lower, generally around the world. So it appears that we are heading into a downturn over the next few months. But a downturn is distinct from a recession or not? Well, there's. how does one define a recession? Is it two uh, negative GDP quarters in a row? Is it just very poor economic activity that's still positive, but let's, I'm going to say pathetic and just barely above zero? It still counts as poor, below expectations economic activity. And I think that is, that is, almost inevitable. It's hard to see how that's not going to happen. Okay, now there's a rumor that one of our other co-hosts wrote a blog um, about recessions and such like. And for those of us who don't understand what a blog is, let's go over that particular point. But what did you, um, <laughs> what were your words of wisdom on this subject then, Amy? Yeah, I was trying to just kind of write some some words of comfort for my clients. And, and I'm not necessarily on, on the all positive train either. I think there are um, several problems. Number one, the ongoing trade war with China, um, the uncertainty surrounding Brexit, and the, honestly, the, the interest rate situation and deflationary pressures from everywhere else in the globe um, that makes this point in time very, very difficult. And I, from my standpoint, this uh, the U.S., which f- historically is, has has kind of driven global GDP and even kind of whatever happens to the U.S. happens to the rest of the world um, is is not the case currently. You know, the, the U.S. has had strong employment growth, pretty stable earnings, and really been able to keep their inflation level about 2%, which is really um, a healthy economy. And so we would like to be, I say we, the U.S., uh, would like to be raising rates, but the rest of the world won't cooperate because of the rest of the problems that are plaguing plaguing both Europe and the nonsense tariff situation that our our 
president is waging. Your president, stay on. on. <laughs> I, I am an American. It's a, it's a problem. I know, but um, I, and I think we'll probably talk about the trade war uh, in a bit. But without the ability for us to raise interest rates, because the rest of the world continues to want to demand uh, those dollars, uh, we're going to be sucked into the rest of the or the U.S. will be sucked into the rest of those uh, dis- deflationary pressures around the world, which is why we saw the Fed uh, drop short-term rates last last week, which at the time um, seemed almost crazy because the justification was we have to do this because the rest of the world is doing this. Um, but that is the case. We don't. The U.S. does not exist in a vacuum, regardless of what Donald Trump says. I saw an interest. I saw. A, I don't know if it's interesting or worrisome. I saw a statistic, or a, a chart rather. The New York, the, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. is ba- is made up of a number of different sub-organizations based in different cities. And the New York Federal Reserve, which is responsible for controlling the banking sector, amongst other things, has a a well-regarded research arm, an economics research arm. And one of the indicators that they publish periodically is a is something called a recession predictor. And I saw the latest publication they had come out with, and it's currently showing a probability in 2020 of a recession of around about 35%. The indicator has never been higher than 35%. <laughs> so even when we went into the 2001 and the great financial crisis, it was at the same same percentage level. And it's never not predicted a recession when it's been at these sorts of levels. So that says to me, there's really, really big problems ahead. If the if it's never actually got worse than this, and it's at that same sort of level, and the last two times it's been at that level, we've had untold of doom. That makes me a little bit nervous. And then I'm listening to you guys. That makes me a little bit more nervous. So what, what, does anyone have anything reassuring to say on this particular subject? Or would you leave that one there and hope no one was uh, too scared by this? Well, I would like to jump in and just say that it's possible, it's plausible that we will simply experience a shallow downturn in economic activity. And if there are no shocks, let's say through the end of this year, then we will be at a point where perhaps economic actors take a look around and see, okay, there was a slowdown, there was no shock, there was no systemic upheaval. Let's explore economic opportunity from here. Perhaps this was as bad as it gets. So there's it's there's always the possibility that it would simply be a shallow slowdown. I say that's plausible, uh, but n- improbable, because there are so many economic, financial, monetary, political, social imbalances that seem uh, that when you're in a slowdown, the chances of any one of those tipping over are greater. When your momentum, when your economic momentum is good, you can move right past any economic imbalances, anything that goes off kilter, you can just keep charging ahead. But when your economy is slowing, that's when the probabilities rise that something can knock you off course and that shock could occur. So, Now you mentioned the word shock and it's, and it's a word that is often used by economists and financial commentators, they say there's a shock to this system or a shock to that, and it causes things. One of the obvious shocks that has been talked about a lot in the past, gosh, two years, has been trade wars and trade disruptions. And people have said, well, 
if you impose tariffs, if you cause stress amongst the global financial system, that will cause a shock to the economic system and it will cause slowdowns, it will cause recessions, it will cause chaos. But the average person who's, who's living around today and living and working, there's been this shock and yet nothing has seemingly happened as of yet. What, what, what are they missing are they, or are they not missing anything at all? Well, from my perspective, the, the trade war has really just been a series of threats. And the U.S. markets, at least, and the global markets in response have responded to the threat and then the news of trade war or trade talks breaking down. And then, and then two days later, we pop back up, bounce back on news that trade wars have or trade talks have resumed. And, and I do think that this is Donald Trump's MO. And this is a threatening situation. We're about to go into an election year next year. And so my belief that Donald Trump is going to actually allow these $300 billion worth of tariffs to happen with China, I I would like to believe on a positive note that that is a little bit of posturing. And, and for whatever reason, the market in the last week has started to take both sides at their word, whereas before I think that it was just a little bit of back and forth. Uh, but as of about last Thursday, it feels like the market is, is taking this possibility that there could be a full-out China versus the U.S. Um, trade war happening. But I think there's still a lot of time this year. I think there's a lot of time next year where some of that could come back around. But yes, the U.S. companies are very dependent on trade with China, on trade with the rest of the world to continue that growth. And Emil, trade wars, is, is this an issue or are we, is it just something that will just get swept away by massaging through profits in companies? I believe that trade wars are symptoms not the cause of the underlying disease. And the underlying disease is the lack of liquidity in the global financial system, the lack of recovery by the financial system, specifically depository banks, commercial banks, uh, investment banks, shadow banks. After 2008, they were scared to death after what happened. And the they never recovered. They never reacquired that perspective that reward outweighs risk and it's these institutions that provide liquidity to the global financial system and by withdrawing such liquidity trade wars are a natural outgrowth because economic activity is shrinking when the economic pie is growing trade wars make no sense but when the economic pie is shrinking it does make sense to grab that biggest piece of the pie in a trade war but don't trade wars if anyone studied the, 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 a modicum of economics, one of the first things you learn is a trade war generally results in higher prices, which are bad for consumers, or results in lower profits. And there have been tariffs. So your, your point is well taken, Amy, that a lot of it has been posturing, but there have been um, tariffs imposed. And yet no one's really sensed or seen that inflation is still subdued, consumer spending is still healthy. So why hasn't that had that shock to the system so far then? Well, I don't know if the trade wars have actually kicked off yet, but if they do, it doesn't. History shows us that trade wars are not lose lose for everybody. The countries that have uh, deficits, capital, I'm sorry, current account deficits mm -hmm. or trade deficits, and have a large pool of underemployed or unemployed workers, 
are the countries that best profit during a trade war. It's the countries that have trade surpluses that are at greatest danger. So that's, that's perhaps why the United States and the United Kingdom are pursuing trade war-like policies. And to break that down, what you're saying there is that the U.S. is a classic example of a country that is actually importing more than it tends to export in physical goods. It has a on the service side, it exports services, but in physical goods, it imports more. So if imports and trade actually is impacted, it is impacted less than others because it's actually importing from others. So others who are exporting are suffering more than those who are importing those products, is what you're saying. The United States and the United Kingdom have more demand in their economy than their economy is capable of supporting. They are they have so much demand, they're looking to the rest of the world to supply, to balance that demand. Hence the, hence the negotiating tactic, I suppose, of the U.S. government or the U.S. administration with respect to it feels that that is a plausible way that it can beat up others because it knows that others will fear exactly that point, presumably. I read a great line uh, by Michael Pettis, one of our in Cayman Investment Forum speakers, and he had a great line that summarized it saying trade deficit countries hold all the best cards in a generalized trade war, but that doesn't mean they know how to play them well. Well, I think we need to take a pause and have a quick break. I'm looking at the producer. Yes, indeed, we do. So hold that thought, Emil, and rejoin us in 60 seconds. Welcome back. In the first half of today's show, we sought to answer some of your burning questions, and we will continue to do so in the second half of the show. We talked about the risks of trade wars. We talked about the probability of recession, now I want to turn to a question, which is a another perhaps symptom to yours, your, to use your words, Emil, interest rates. Are, are we at risk? What are what are negative interest rates? First of all, there's there's a concern in the general population that these things are bad. But then people who borrow money would think, well, it can't be that bad if I actually have to pay if the bank pays me each year. So, what exactly are negative interest rates? Are they to be feared? And just, just help us understand a little bit about those things. Who wants to take that? I can start, but this is a this is a deep topic. So negative interest rates. So when you go to the bank, obviously you borrow money. Um, the bank um, offers you an interest rate. You have to pay back not only the money that you want to borrow, but also interest. Everyone kind of understands that. Uh, so the idea that the bank would ultimately charge basically tax on savings in this in this case, uh, which is ultimately designed to help people not continue to save and w try to spur them to spend. The other way that, that negative interest rates um, metastasize is that governments are basically uh, borrowing money at negative interest rates. So say, um, Germany, for example, um, wants to borrow money, they will issue their debt um, for uh, more than what they're basically going to be paying back. Um, I have no experience directly with why anyone would buy negative interest rate bonds. Um, which is, in my belief, why more uh, demand for the U.S. dollar and U.S. debt has been spurred. And I also have not seen this negative interest rate environment or policy work. 
so that would be my my number one observation is why are we doing this? But please, Emil, help us with this. Well, Amy is Dr. Amy. She's a doctorate. <laughs> so her answer was very detailed. I will just try to uh, bring it down to my level, which is it just doesn't make sense. Negative interest rates. You don't have to be a, a financial professional to realize that negative nominal interest rates simply don't make sense. And indeed, in the book, A History of Interest Rates, which covers 5,000 years of interest rates uh, by Sidney Homer and Richard Silla, they, they concur. There has never been a moment in human civilization at which point negative nominal interest rates were a policy. It doesn't make sense. It's nothing more than a signal that something is wrong. Something is wrong with the system. You don't have to delve into understanding wh how these things work. It's just a sign something is not right here. And Amy, to your point, why would anyone buy negative yielding German debt called buns? Why? Because of a liquidity crisis. Those are some of the deepest markets in capital markets, our sovereign debt markets. And by owning these uh, assets, you can get out of positions. You are liquid. You can sell them off to anybody. And when we see a liquidity crunch taking place is when we see people, people, large institutions move into these uh, sovereign bond yields. So that's what's I believe is happening. We're seeing it not just in Germany, but we're seeing it across all six of the biggest sovereign debt bond markets. We're seeing them plunge. Why? These are very liquid, very safe instruments. You're not worried about making a return. You're just worried about making it to next week. And perhaps mm -hmm. we need to clarify what we, we often mean, what is meant by the term negative interest rates, because someone sitting at home listening to this could be thinking, I'm currently paying prime plus 2% on my mortgage, so 5 6% or whatever the number might be. Wouldn't that be lovely if it was negative? The bank would be paying me, but don't get ever so slightly ahead of yourself. That's not going to happen. What it means is that if you're actually depositing money in a bank, the bank's going to basically tax you and actually give you back less at the end of the year than you put in because of negative interest rates. There's no way and I'm going to be a little bit blunt here, there's no way in hell they're going to actually charge you negative interest rates on your mortgage. So what it does is it discourages people from actually keeping savings. The central banks believe that by doing this, it'll encourage economic activity yeah, yeah. and by consumption. Tax, by, by, by making it so scary to hold money in cash or in savings that you must spend the damn stuff. Otherwise, it's going to become worth less at the end of the year. So what, I, what, I get, what I'm getting from there is if you're sitting at home thinking, oh, it would be lovely if there were negative interest rates, it, my mortgage payments would cost me less. That's just not going to happen. Negative interest rates are a symptom of really bad things that are out there in the world. So if you start to see that being talked about in plausible terms in the US, be very, very scared. Hmm. Well, that's uplifting. We have, uh, we have now about seven minutes to go. Uh, you mentioned something in your answer to the interest rate question, Emil, which was a book that you had um, referenced. And one question we had in, which my computer's now gone completely blank, uh, but one of the questions which I think I remember um, coming in was books and learning about financial markets and economics and such like. What books can we recommend? What books would we recommend? Would that book be worthwhile? Either, either of you take that one. Yeah, I I've obviously learned most of what I know from books. And 
um, both books and participating in investing is the best way to learn. Um, when I when I think about my favorite books about investing, my favorite book is A Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Macchiel. Um, but it is a little bit technical and a little bit long. So if you're looking for something that's a little simpler to read, I'd recommend The Little Book of Common Sense Investing um, by John Bogle, who is the um, late founder of Vanguard. And it is a very easy read and a very small little book that can fit right in your purse. And I like that. What about you, Emil? I don't have a purse, unfortunately. Not even a European carry-all for men. But isn't it called a purse for men? I don't I, I'm speechless. We'll I mean, get you I'm one. I'm speechless. Maybe like a beach bag or a fanny pack. Very, yes, uh, a beach bag. That means <laughs> I need a slightly lar- I can carry a slightly larger book. And the one I'm thinking of is Market Wizards by Jack D. Schwager. So Dr. Amy was mentioning more about the book she was mentioning. It seemed more like long-term investing kind of a, a bent. While the book that I just mentioned, Market Wizards, is a review. The author goes and interviews some of the best traders in business at the time. And they all have different styles, different interests. And so if you read this book, if you're interested in trading, you can read this book and get a sense of the different styles, different asset classes, and then you can pick what you're most uh, attracted to. What about you, Simon? What, What would be a book you would recommend? Well, this is this is going to be awkward for me. I haven't read a book on investing for a little while. I'm I'm too busy reading books on uh, the Large Hadron Collider, and uh, the and discovering the origin of the universe rather it's, than. I thought that was a hedge fund, but <laughs> you're saying that's physics. <laughs> yeah, more. I'm I'm reading that sort of stuff. I'm I, I'm taking the longer perspective. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back to the big bang. <laughs> you've, you've got books on thousand years of interest rates. I'm going back to. Uh, yeah, gravitational waves and uh, what what's really out there i'm impressed uh, i don't know if that's the right word for it okay we've got a couple of minutes left budgeting amy oh geez the b word <laughs> should we should we do budgeting or should we, now people are so scared about the impending recession and doom that's laden i think people are out buying bunkers and uh, farmyard and uh, planting crops for armageddon but budgeting should they still consider this in the light of what we've been talking about <laughs> well i mean if it all goes to hell then you won't need that money anyway so um but yes so budgeting budgeting is very important and um especially on this island it's very expensive to live here as we all know and there's always pressures to to go to brunch or or anywhere else but usually when people are like how do i stick to a budget how do i start a budget i usually say to start with writing down what you think you're spending on what. So just make sit down, make a list, and say, I'm spending this much on eating out, I'm spending this much on, on groceries, I'm spending this much on gas, et cetera, et cetera, and go all the way down with what your paycheck is. Um, then actually go to your bank account and see actually what you did actually spend, and you will probably be blown away with how different your thought on what you're spending money is versus what you are actually spending money is. And then you should make your budget off of those two um, lists to to actually make a realistic budget that you could actually stick to. I went through this process just recently, and you're absolutely correct. I was stunned by how much I spend on food. Mm Mm-hmm. That's almost always the, the thing that surprises people is how much they eat out and how much money they've spent at Wendy's for me. <laughs> I try to only eat there once a week. It's good. 
I don't know if we're necessarily advertising far. There are other fast food uh, <laughs> restaurants available for for listeners. <laughs> Moving on swiftly. <laughs> I guess she is American. Uh, anyway, well, one one is perfectly delicious. Uh, as as are other fast food restaurants, I'm sure. <laughs> um, one one last question: We are, as always, a little bit short of time. A question that has that has been asked is: Would business conditions and opportunities be improved in Cayman if Cayman moved its time zone? to East Coast time all year round. At the moment, we have the quirk where it seems that we are incapable of learning how to change our clocks and we move randomly from New York to Texas. Uh, nothing wrong with Texas or, or New York, but it does seem a little bit peculiar. Or Oklahoma, depending on well, your Well, there's perspective. Definitely, definitely issues with Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> and the simple answer to that question, dear listener, is undeniably, indubitably, unambiguously, yes, it would be better were we to do that. And it's nothing but ignorance and stupidity, which means we don't. Are you trying to incite riot on the, the I radio say, show? God bless Cayman for not flipping their hours back and forth. They're the ones that are not moving. It's the rest of the world that's flip-flopping back and forth, making up time zones. Uh, it's a miracle, and I love it. And yeah, well, we, we, will ad- we will agree to disagree with, with a degree of uh, vitriol that will uh, befall you shortly, Emil. Um, now, ordinarily, as I wrap up this show, we say that uh, time is short and we wish we had more. Obviously, as we are now people asking and answering or asking, answering the questions you've asked, we're very glad time has run to an end and we no longer face the anxiety and stress of having to answer any more questions until next time, of course. Um, whether we've actually successfully answered your questions, only time will tell. But if you have more, please, of course, email us or tweet us at Money Sense Radio. I think we do have a little announcement before we depart, don't we, Amy, with respect to a forum that's coming up. Do you have some details on that? Yes, absolutely. The And I think uh, Emil alluded to one of our speakers last year, but um, all three of us at this table, along with the CFA Society Cayman Islands, are involved in the seventh annual Cayman Investment Forum, which will be held on October 17th at the Ritz-Carlton, hosted by Simon Condry. Very excited. Oh, how did I not tell you tell you <laughs> about it yet? Um, you can learn more at www.caymaninvestmentforum.com and listeners of Money Sense can get a 10% discount by using the discount code MONEYSENSE, all caps, one word. Well, we love our discount. So caymaninvestmentforum.com, discount code MONEYSENSE, and it is October 17th. The 17th. With that, thank you very much for joining us. Join us in two weeks' time. It's been a pleasure having you with us.